CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. It's time for another Political Rewind, and as always, I'm so glad to have all of you out there joining us. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, We have a terrific panel lined up for today's show and clearly a lot to talk about. I do want to take a couple of minutes, though, at the top of the show to talk to you very personally. Um, If you've been listening to GPB Radio early this morning, listening to Morning Edition, you know that we've just begun our fall pledge drive here at the radio station. Uh, We only do it twice a year, and uh, it is crucial to us uh, to be able to bring in the kind of revenues we need to keep programs like Political Rewind uh, uh, going. Um, When we realized, um, you know, last month that the fall pledge drive would inevitably and, and without any choice fall in the last weeks of a presidential campaign, Uh, The Political Rewind team went to the management team here and said, we really think it's important to do as much as we can to keep our show uh, on track in the middle of a uh, pledge drive. And, you know, we didn't even have to go to them. They already got that. They already said they understood how important this show has been to you in terms of keeping you informed, especially as we move into uh, the final weeks of a presidential campaign, among the many other things that are going on in the country right now. So here's what's going to happen today. Today, we're not going to be interrupted by any pledge messages at all, other than me talking to you directly. The same tomorrow, because we think the presidential debate tonight is incredibly important, and we want to have as much time as possible to talk about that and other big issues that are going on right now. Um, Do I think this is the best time for us to be asking you for money? Of course not. We're still in the grip of a pandemic. We're living in a toxic political environment that has many people feeling frustrated, depressed, upset. Um, Questions about racial justice and equality continue to gnaw away at us and our consciences as we look for ways to solve those problems. So of course this isn't the best time to ask for money. But guess what? We at Political Rewind have been here with you every day through all of that, trying to bring you messages that help you understand and put in context with our wonderful panelists what's happening in the world we're living in. Uh, In January, we expanded the show to five days a week uh, because you asked us to. You told us you wanted more political rewind, and that has required more resources. So to end my pitch to you at this moment, I just want to say, This is the time. If you have given to us in the past, now's a great time to do it again. If you have not been a supporter of GPB Radio and of Political Rewind, please do it now. You can do it at gpb.org. You can do it while you're listening to this program. And I, I really hope you will. So that's it for right now. Let me get to the panel. Tamar Hallerman is with us. She's a senior reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and joins us on Tuesdays. Hey, Tamar, how are you? Hi. Happy Tuesday. Yeah, I'm very happy to have you here. Uh, We're going to, in a moment, talk about a story that you filed for the AJC over the weekend, and we'll get to that. Um, We're also joined today by uh, Dr. Audrey Haynes. She's a a professor of political science 
at the University of Georgia. You all know her well out in the audience. She also oversees the um, politics. Um, why am I blocking the name of your program, Audrey? Applied Come politics. on. Applied politics, because you say it. Applied so politics. <laughs> Thank you. Which, of course, trains uh, students to become professionals in uh, politics. Although, Audrey, I've said it before, I'll say it again, given the political landscape today, uh, I hope you're training good people to do the most positive and good work they can in that field, Audrey. We do, and we always start off talking about ethics. So even if it's not against the law, it may not be a good thing to do. <laughs> okay. We're joined also by the chairman of, I'm sorry, the CEO of DeKalb County, a very different position than being chairman of the county, Michael Thurmond. Uh, he, of course, is former labor commissioner of the state of Georgia, ran for the United States Senate in 2010, was a member of the state legislature from Athens. And Michael, although our listeners cannot see what we do, which is what seeing each other on WebEx. I've never mentioned that behind you at your desk, you have a big sign that says INSPIRE, which strikes me as being a word that animates your entire career as a political leader. Uh, absolutely, especially as you just noted during times of pandemic and uh, political toxicity, is the focus should be as Dr. Haynes spoken, as to do some good for someone every day you come to work. All right. Well, thank you for being here. And we're joined by uh, Sam Olins. We love to have Michael Thurman and Sam Olins on together uh, because they've known each other for many years in politics. Sam Olins, the former attorney general of the state of Georgia. Before that, one of the most highly respected county chairmen when he ran the Cobb County uh, Commission and now a partner at Denton's, the world's largest law firm. Hey, Sam, how's life up there in Marietta? Doing well, sir. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. All right, let's get to um, one of the two huge stories that broke over the weekend and that I want to find out uh, from the panel what they think about, number one, their influence on the elections here in Georgia, but beyond that, how they're also going to impact uh, the debate between uh, Biden and Trump tonight. Um, Tamar, uh, on uh, uh, Saturday afternoon, President Trump uh, formally did what we all expected him to do. He nominated Amy Coney Barrett to uh, replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg to fill her seat on the United States Supreme Court. Controversial because of her conservative leanings to some. Uh, and you have you went out and gathered uh, response. First, you got elected officials in the state and it broke along party lines, right? Yeah, of course. A lot of Republicans who are already extremely supportive of the president immediately um, indicated that they wanted to see uh, Judge Barrett's confirmation as soon as possible, preferably before the election. And Democrats, who, of course, disliked the president, were saying this is a, um, you know, this is a stolen seat. They, you know, the winner of the November election should be the one who determines the seat. And a lot of them pointed to the way that the Republican Senate treated Merrick Garland back in 2016 when Barack Obama nominated him back in the spring. And they said, if that was too close to an election for confirmation, how is, you know, 30 some odd days out from a presidential election? OK. Was there anything surprising about the way this fell among Republicans and Democrats that you got pretty much what we expected? Uh, I, I will say uh, Kelly Leffler 
was proud of the fact that she was the first member of the United States Senate to say to President Trump, go at full speed to get this nomination approved. Uh, David Perdue uh, said it was an outstanding choice. The Democrats, of course, uh, condemned it. So nothing surprising, right, Tamar? Not particularly. Uh, David Perdue was interested to hear when I interviewed him on Saturday, right before the the nomination was finalized, that he also wanted to see a confirmation vote ahead of the election. There was some question initially about whether Majority Leader McConnell wanted to do that or uh, maybe nominate first and wait until after the election, help Jews turn out, um, not rush a confirmation hearing. But as we've seen now from his statements, they're going to rush to do that the week of October 12th and likely have her in place the week before the election. Audrey, we know that virtually every poll taken uh, in the last week, some before the president formally nominated uh, Barrett, uh, some after, has uh, shown that the American people would prefer that a nominee not be named until after the presidential election by whoever the winner of that election is. And because the Republicans are moving very, very quickly, uh, there are some who think that there's some risk involved in doing that. Um, give us your take. Well, it's interesting. I was looking at the polls myself, and you know, there is this uh, general tendency for people to believe that they should conduct them fairly. Uh, there, there is a lot of discussion about what happened with Merrick Garland, but you know, for a good third of those responding to the polls, the intensity level for. Uh, you know, feeling very strongly about whether or not the confirmation takes place early or later is just not there. So it's very divided in terms of partisanship, right? So every like everything else, it's divided by partisanship. So I don't think we're going to see uh, a lot of public clamor. You will see groups out there that are on both sides of the aisle spending tens of millions of dollars trying to uh, put out ads to move some of that public opinion. Whether it's going to have any impact or not is a real question. And during the hearings, which we'll likely be seeing because they're going to be conducted during October, um, how the Democrats act and treat um, this individual who is being um, going through the process and being vetted is going to be interesting, you know, I mean, and they're going to be worried about uh, potential backlash because this election is all about mobilization. You don't want any of your voters suppressed. You don't want anyone to turn away. It is all about get out the vote and it can potentially have an impact there. So, uh, Sam and Michael, I want to get you uh, each to weigh in on this. Uh, Sam, uh, there are so many threads that we can pull at here, tug at here in terms of this nomination and its impact in five weeks before the election. But um, what, what is it that strikes you as the most either important, most impactful, most interesting? What are you watching as this unfolds? So two things. One. Uh, there's going to be a much larger percentage of Americans that vote before Election Day. So that's going to be really key with regard to what Audrey just said about mobilization, because it's all about getting your voters to the polls. Secondly, just as Aubrey said, I think uh, folks are going to be paying attention to see how the Democrats deal with a woman in contrast to how they dealt with Kavanaugh. If it is considered cheap, lowball politics, uh, during the uh, hearings, uh, I think you're going to see the Republicans with an extra step. 
Michael? I, I agree with uh, again with uh, Professor Haynes, but I, I think it may be important at the margins. Uh, but I did note that they are moderate Republicans uh, who've taken the position that this process or this nomination should wait until after the election. Uh, what Joe Biden needs to continue to lead in the polls as he does now is for moderate Republican conservative Democrats to come to his uh, side of the equation. And so at the margins, it may be significant uh, to maintain support for moderate Republicans and conservative Democrats by opposing the nomination prior to election. But, okay, so you would start with, if you had some uh, involvement with how the Democrats in Senate move forward, you would start with their messaging continuing to be what it has been. This is unfair. You should not be doing this before the election. That would be your starting point is what you're saying. Absolutely, because that's a message that has the potential to resonate beyond the Democratic base. Uh, For the great majority of voters, uh, right and left, conservative, uh, as well as progressive, we made up our minds. So this election now is about the margins in the electorate who might be moved by this election if they feel like the process is unfair, irrespective as to who the nominee is or is not. At the same time, I, I just did a story on, on suburban women and a lot of those, those women kind of leaning one way or another, but, but still undecided in the race. And fairness and integrity was an issue I heard a lot. Um, but I could see a lot of those women also thinking if Democrats try and stonewall, which they, they really have limited opportunities to do that, they could see that as unfair to Trump's nominee. At the same time, um, Democrats have to be careful not only to, to not um, – you know, insult Barrett or, or go after her religious faith or anything like that. But they also need to be careful because they're under pressure from their base to, to talk about things like packing the court, expanding it to maybe 11 or 13 justices, potentially eliminating the filibuster on legislation. Um, of course, the base, that's something they want, but, but maybe your average voter in the middle, kind of a moderate, might be very opposed to that. And I think that's why you're seeing with Democrats from Chuck Schumer all the way on down into Georgia to people like John Ossoff, they're talking about this vacancy in terms of health care and what it could mean for the Affordable Care Act. And that was an issue that helped them win over a lot of those suburban women in 2018, and they're banking on that helping them again this year. Well, thank you for weighing in on that, because it leads me to play one of the commercials that's now going to start uh, uh, on the air in, in a number of states, including Georgia. This is a spot from the Democratic National Committee. It is a pro-Biden spot, obviously. Um, and we're going to pick it up. It's a minute long. So we're going to pick it up, uh, up so, so a few seconds in. But what it, it focuses on a woman uh, with a daughter who appears to be about three years old. She, her daughter, and her husband all had COVID-19, but it's of particular concern, as you'll hear her describe in this commercial, because her daughter also has an underlying disease. So let's listen to how the DNC is uh, spinning the Barrett nomination. My daughter has chronic lung disease, so that made all of this very scary for us. What also scares me is Donald Trump trying to let insurance companies deny health coverage or charge more because of a pre-existing condition. Trump is rushing through a Supreme Court nominee to do just that, strip away care for millions of Americans and end pre-existing condition protections. 
So many people will be living with new chronic health conditions for the rest of their lives because of coronavirus. In the middle of this pandemic, how can you take away the very protections that ensure people hurt by COVID aren't denied coverage? So, Sam, there's the second point. Uh, Michael Thurman said if, if he were an advisor to the Democrats in the Senate, he would make it first about this is unfair. You're moving forward at this stage. And then the Democrats are going to go after her as someone who could unwind the health care of millions of Americans. Right. There is no one who seriously believes if the president were a Democrat and the Senate were Democrat, that they wouldn't be doing the exact same thing. This is pure politics at its norm. So I think the argument, you know, they're rushing, they're rushing. Yeah, they're doing exactly what the other party would do if the shoe were on the other foot. There's no question, however, that healthcare gives an advantage to the Democrat Party. And there's no question that the response from the Republicans then needs to be civil unrest. And I think you're going to see the follow-up commercials now from uh, the Republican organizations talking about how quiet uh, the former vice president was for weeks and weeks when our cities were being torn down. Uh, And those are both good points that both parties want to press. Um, Audrey, I'm going to let you jump in. But Sam, before I do, Sam Olins, just to head off all of the Facebook Live posts, I'm going to get all the tweets It is the Democratic Party, as you know, (laughs) not the Democrat Party, but we get the way you like to frame that. Audrey? (laughs) Well, I was going to follow up on that with um, the notion that electoral politics is is very much a part of what's going on in this uh, Senate confirmation. So you have a number of people on the Judiciary Committee who are in tough races. Um, How will this affect them? And the Democrats, I think, uh, uh, again, with following up with what Sam said, most of us know that in politics, you're going to do what you are able to do, what you're allowed to do. The question of is it fair may not play into this. True. But they are setting themselves up for at least public pressure when it comes to Texas v. California, which is the big ACA case that's going to be coming up soon. And that public pressure uh, could have an impact on Uh, The Senate elections and Senate elections as well um, are in question now. Who is going to control the Senate? Um, I will note, too, that this is very important to Trump because all indications, even though people are anxious about the election, are that he is in the, the worst situation that any incumbent president has been in terms of his reelection probabilities. They are they are not high. So, you know, this is something that's important to the party there. I think they want to. This is why we've seen some of the um, the questions about McConnell's choices and whether they're going to rush it through. Or they're trying to figure out how this is going to have a positive impact on the campaign for their Senate seats and and House seats and state legislature seats. Having played a spot from the Democrats, I want to play a spot from the Judicial Crisis Network, which is a conservative organization that is obviously pushing for Barrett uh, to be confirmed by the Senate. And when we come back, Michael, I'm going to ask you about this messaging and how you counter it. You will hear a lot about Amy Coney Barrett. Hear it from her. Courts are not arenas for politics. You are not there to decide cases as you may prefer. You are there to do your duty and to follow the law wherever it may take you. 
Amy Coney Barrett follows the law and ignores politics. A scholar, a judge, grounded in faith and family, she's the perfect choice to follow Justice Ginsburg. Michael, a very upbeat message from the Judicial Crisis Network. Oh, absolutely. And what I believe you will see from Democrats is not a direct attack against uh, Judge Barrett, similar to anything you saw uh, with Kavanaugh. But I think they recognize to what's been stated that it's a political process. But, you know, the voters aren't hardened politicians, and they are still citizens who do believe in fairness. Whether or not elected officials or uh, people like us believe in it, they are people out in this country who do believe in it. I think the pivot uh, to health care, I, I really believe, Bill, that a hidden constituency, you know, we've heard about the soccer moms and college-educated white women. There is a new constituency that's actually floated under the radar, I think, in terms of uh, overall media coverage, and those are people and families who've been infected by COVID-19. If you or someone you know or love has been impacted by this disease, you have a totally different view of this world. I've seen so many reports from Republicans or conservatives who said they thought it was a hoax, and you listen to them after the fact, after they spent 30 days uh, in ICU on a ventilator, they have a different worldview and a different political view. So I think the focus towards health care and the ability to treat people who, for no fault of their own, white, black, rich, poor, Republican, or Democrat, have been impacted by this terrible disease, is going to play in this election. And I think that's another weak point for President Trump. One thing I'm going to be really interested to see, you know, for, for years we've seen the Supreme Court as an extremely motivating issue for social conservatives. And that's something that really helped Donald Trump in 2016, especially with religious conservatives, Ralph Reed's group, facing Freedom. I wonder how much it's going to motivate the left this time around to, to rally around Joe Biden, and especially more liberal voters who, who maybe aren't particularly excited about him. Um, if Democrats can frame it in terms of what might be lost with a sixth three minority on the Supreme Court, that could have a huge impact for them on Election Day. Okay, uh, let's do this. Let's get the first break of the show out of the way. We still have so much uh, to talk about on the show today, and we will do that after we pause for these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Sam Olins, Michael Thurman, uh, Audrey Haynes, and Tamar Hallerman join me on the show today. Sam, if, if I may, I'm going to start with you on this one. Um, the New York Times reporting on, on the Trump finances at his income tax records, uh, other aspects of his financial dealings over a number of decades is incredibly dense reading. It's a pretty, it's an extraordinarily powerful report. Um, but for somebody like me, uh, who has trouble with figures to begin with, I've never been a good math guy, uh, I got about a 
halfway in and started to really struggle to make sure I could understand much of it. But but here's what I think is interesting, Sam. Um, Trump has always been the master of labeling. I mean, we know that whether you like him as the president or not, he is brilliant at branding and marketing. His nicknames for uh, politicians he doesn't like have had an impact. He knows how to grab hold of an idea and pound away at it in simple terms. So, Sam, in that whole welter of information the Times has dropped and today are continuing to drop, here is what I think is the most interesting of all. If they had simply said Trump paid no taxes for 10 or 15 years, that would have been fine and it would have had some impact, but it's the figure $750. It's the specificity of the fact that for two years, 2016 and 2017, he paid $750. And that is Trump, in a way, hoisted on his own petard because it's a number that people can really grab hold of in a very specific way. Do you agree that this whole report is incredibly damaging, or do you think it'll wash over the people who already uh, love him and can't wait to get to the polls to vote for him? The latter. Uh, By definition, I think this excites the folks that want to be excited and bores everyone else. Uh, You know, first of all, let's let's, uh, remind ourselves that this is called a felony, uh, releasing and getting to someone's uh, tax returns. Uh, the, the the opposition party doesn't seem to be interested in the fact that uh, uh, that that's a felony. They're more excited to have the data than to understand what that does to our system of justice. Uh, secondly, there's there's really some interesting issues here that are pretty basic, like depreciation, tax credits, uh, things that business folks are very familiar with, uh, such that what you pay. Uh, is frankly a small portion of the real discussion. So I think this, this frankly helps Trump in showing how biased the New York Times is and has become and how a great newspaper is now a minor player uh, with regard to national politics. Uh, and, and I really don't think it adds much to discussion. Um does it, in fact, show that Trump has not been a particularly a, a, a good businessman, as he tried to tell us for so many decades? Yeah, I frankly don't feel that I'm competent to answer that question either way. But uh, last time I checked, I didn't get paid four hundred some million dollars to do a TV show. So you got you got to praise him in some areas. And last time I checked, before he ran for president, everyone wanted his name on their office building. Michael, weigh in on this. Um, uh, Sam seizes on the fact that he thinks what the New York Times has done is illegal. Uh, uh, Trump has refused to release his income tax for some years. Others would suggest they've done a public service. Well, to something Sam said earlier, you know, the public doesn't care whether it's illegal or not. You know, politics is a hardball game. But... The $750 in taxes is one issue, but I think the one that's going to resonate the most is the $70,000 for haircuts. Mm-hmm. I'm just telling you, just for the average Joe, and this election is not about the base on the left or the right. Right now, this election is going to be determined by a relatively small percentage of white voters who are either independent or moderate 
or conservative Democrats and moderate Republicans. That's where this might resonate to not paying the taxes, but more particularly the extraordinary amount for health care. And I agree with Sam. It's not for the Trumpers, it doesn't matter. Uh, for progressive Democrats, it's not going to make them dislike Trump more than they already like him. This raises about that small percentage of voters, and I think it has a, a potential to have an impact because Joe Biden is the type of candidate could, that could also and does appeal to moderate centrist voters. That's the threat to Donald Trump's campaign at this point. Well, I would jump in right there, too, as well, and follow up and say that for those who've been following Trump and his taxes, there is a very long history going back to the 1950s with his relationships with the tax accountants who work for him, one of whom by in particular was thrown out by the accounting firm. And there were all kinds of accusations regarding fraud and malpractice um, and misconduct. So that has been something that has not really made it out to the mainstream public. His relationship with Deutsche Bank is another one that is questionable. And the fact that he owes $400 million, and that's coming due. There are so many dimensions to questions about the Trump finances, you know, paying his daughter who works for the firm a consulting fee on top of working for the firm, and then finding ways to write all of these things off, which average Americans cannot do. If average Americans did those things, they would be in jail. I think about how this, this could impact the race. And I'm not so sure this this is the Teflon candidate where, you know, things like the excess Hollywood tape couldn't, um, you know, slow him down. So I really wonder. I think it'll add, a, you know, an extra dimension to, to tonight's debate. And I think his performance in defending himself, I think, will, will say a lot. But I'm not convinced that it'll move anyone at this point just because everyone is so darn entrenched and there are so few people in the middle. So uh, maybe it will, but... Um, I'm not so sure. Uh, Sam, I want to go back to uh, the statement you made a few minutes ago. Uh, Obviously, you were the attorney general of the state of Georgia. um, So let me ask you this. Um, This is a federal matter, but uh, you're saying that you as an attorney general uh, would have looked upon this as being an illegal activity by the New York Times. And I'm not a legal expert. I don't know anybody else on the panel who might have that expertise. But is it, do they, would, the, would it be illegal to release the, the returns themselves as opposed to reporting on some of what the returns say? So let me be clear. Uh, I think there's a whole line of cases going back to the Pentagon Papers uh, where no one is uh, uh, alleging or should be alleging that the New York Times committed a crime. The individual that had access to the tax returns and released them, now that's a felony. And that's a federal felony, not a state felony. Um, and I agree with uh, Mike. Thank you. Th- you know, and I agree with Mike. John Q. Voter doesn't care that it's a felony, but it does go to show the degree of sleaze that we're going to deal with the next five weeks. It does go to show that there is no attempt to play within the bounds of fair play by either party the next five weeks. This is open warfare. Um, And I think that's the important thing for Americans that are looking for a clean discussion about issues. Now might be the time to take a long nap. 
Very similar. <laughs> very real. This is very similar to WikiLeaks and the, and the theft of emails uh, from Hillary Clinton. I mean, it wasn't that long ago when this conversation was being had about thousands of stolen emails that were reported upon and shared with the public in the final days of a presidential campaign. Um, I wanted to uh, point out, Tamar, that uh, Amelia Brock just sent me a tweet from Ann Coulter, who, of course, has been a longtime conservative writer, and uh, she's not been a great fan of President Trump. we got to be clear on the fact that she had a falling out with him at a certain point. But here's what she just tweeted. She said, I don't think conservatives— that the conservatives' take on Donald Trump paying no taxes should be because he's smart— I've paid, says Coulter, nearly 50% of my income in taxes year after year, and any system that allows billionaires to pay zero is unspeakably corrupt. How about changing it, Democrats? Well, of course, tomorrow Democrats right now aren't in control of the United States Senate, so they don't have a whole lot they can do at this point. But but it is interesting to hear that take from a uh, a conservative, despite the fact that she's been anti-Trump for a while now. Yeah, and culture of all people, I don't think I would have been able to guess that. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way, because I really want to come back and roll the two com- topics that we've been talking about together and, and ask this panel what they're expecting and what they'd like to see happen and what advice they would give to the uh, two candidates tonight. Because, of course, the candidates will want to hear what our panel has to say for tonight's debate. We'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back uh, to Political Rewind. Uh, Let me just remind you once again, we're in the middle of our, or we've just started, actually, our fall pledge drive. Once, twice a year, we come to you and say, we need your support. We're public radio, and uh, we need your help to sustain the programming that we do here. Um, and, and because we're in the middle of such a crucial election cycle, uh, the bosses here have said, Political Rewind, you should go unfettered uh, for some of the days during this drive. Uh, and even when we are going to have a couple of pledge uh, breaks, we're going to do it in such a way that you get a lot of time for content from our panelists. Uh, So we're very happy that they've made that decision. But guess what? We need you to support us, even though we're not going to interrupt every seven or eight minutes to ask you to do it. So please go to gpb.org and and make a contribution today. Thanks uh, so much. Uh, for whatever you can do to help us. Uh, Tamar, uh, as we do this show live on a Tuesday morning, uh, right as we went on the air, your colleague Greg Bluestein dropped a pretty significant story. He reports that uh, Jimmy Carter has now endorsed Raphael Warnock uh, for that Senate race number two. Uh, he said, President Carter said in a statement Uh, That Warnock, quote, will be the voice Georgians need in Washington to assure every child and every family has an opportunity to thrive. Uh, Just this past Friday, tomorrow, uh, former President Obama endorsed Raphael Warnock. And let's just take a minute to talk about this, because this is the effort that some Democrats are now making to try to clear the field for Warnock to be the only major Democrat facing uh, Doug Collins and Kelly Leffler in that jungle election. So endorsements are endorsements, 
but it is going to increase the pressure, especially on a Matt Lieberman and maybe an Ed Tarver to get out tomorrow. Exactly. Democrats are, are closing ranks around uh, Raphael Warnock because remember, with 21 candidates in the field on November 3rd, uh, they're fighting over two spots for a runoff in January. Uh, and between Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins, who are also both polling in the low to mid-20s, Democrats need to kind of pick one person to get behind to, to get that second slot. And right now, polling is showing, um, you know, Kelly Leffler slightly ahead, and then Doug Collins and Raphael Warnock kind of right around 20, 21, 22%. And so it, it's critical for, for Democrats to kind of uh, make a coordinated effort behind one person, or at least that's what the party is saying. You talk to somebody like Ed Tarver or, or Matt Lieberman, and they say, look, um, you know, our names will still appear on the ballot, even if we were to drop out, and, and Democrats deserve a choice. Um, why does there need to be an anointed person? So um, it'll be interesting to see if Democrats can rally and, and get that, that second slot going into January. So uh, it's also interesting, Audrey, that just this past week, the Leffler campaign is, uh, has uh, released a, its first TV ad that actually attacks Raphael Warnock, and it does it in the context of the Supreme Court nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. But clearly they see Warnock now as somebody who could be a threat to maybe Republicans having both Collins and Leffler uh, uh, go into a, a, a runoff. I find that I thought that ad was fascinating, uh, Audrey. Yes, and anticipated. As soon as I saw the new polling data that showed that Warnock was pulling ahead of the other uh, Democratic uh, candidates in that pool, I expected Collins and Leffler to um, turn their attacks on him. That that is what. Uh, political strategy would um, suggest, and it's likely that we'll see a little bit more of that. Um, I would also mention that with Lieberman and Tarver, um, you know, one of the things that they're going to have to live with is if if the margin of the race outcome is determined by their votes and they did nothing to, uh, you know, have an impact, they're gonna, there'll be a backlash for them and their political careers can be impacted by that. So, I mean, I think they have to think very smartly at this moment. Okay, um, we're going to talk about that uh, tomorrow uh, in, in, in more detail on the show, that, that Senate race number two particularly. Uh, so let's move on because we do have the debate coming up at 9 o'clock uh, tonight, Chris Wallace will be the uh, sole moderator of the debate. And uh, polling that I saw this morning uh, indicates that as much as three quarters of the American people say they are going to be tuned in to watch this debate. Um, I We have two panelists on the show today who have engaged a number of times in various races in debates. Uh, Michael Thurman, let me start with you. Uh, if, first of all, when you approached, whether it was a debate for the Senate, uh, for labor commissioner, uh, for any of the other offices that you've held, um, what, what is the most important thing that you believe a candidate must do in preparing for a debate? Well, first and foremost, to understand what the goal and objective is for the debate uh, that's being held and to make sure that you're able to get your message, your ideas through the, through the attacks or through the haze so that you're speaking uh, to your voters. Particularly, you speak first to those who support you to encourage them to go out and actually cast a vote 
but you're also trying to pick up support from voters who may be undecided. So there are multiple goals, and ultimately you don't want to make a, a fatal mistake that might uh, crash and burn your campaign. Okay, so that said, how does that translate to what you as a Democrat believe Joe Biden has to do tonight in facing Donald Trump? I think he has to continue to do what he's done to demonstrate that he is a viable alternative, not just for base Democrat. First, you reaffirm to base Democrat that I'm your guy and I'll fight for your ideas and the positions that Democrats believe are important. That's base. But I think Joe Biden brings something different to this campaign is that he has also positioned himself to be a candidate that can appeal beyond the Democratic base to bring moderate uh, Democrats and Republicans into the fold. You see it by the large number of Republicans who've already come out and endorsed him, uh, uh, Mrs. McCain and, and Colin Powell and others. I think he will try to inspire the base, but also embrace those moderate Republicans who are anti-Trump and encourage them to continue to support and vote for him as well as independents. So, Sam, the same questions to you. First, when you were debating, uh, what were you uh, uh, thinking? What was foremost in your mind for how you prepared and what you wanted as you stood there waiting for the light to turn on on the cameras and the moderator to welcome people to debate? What were you thinking you needed to accomplish? Well, first of all, I think Mike did a really good job with uh, with his answers. I, I think it's nothing, frankly, that different from the normal talk. You want to make three points known, and you want to make them as simply and understandable as possible. And I think you don't want to respond to the cheap shots. You don't want to respond to any efforts to get you ruffled. You want to come across as the competent steady individual. Now, I understand that for the incumbent, his base isn't looking for that, but I think that would be helpful to those same independents that Mike was just speaking to. So what are the points if, uh, and I'm, you know, it, I'm asking you the question out of the blue, so you haven't had time to formulate an answer, but what are those points that Trump ought to make? I mean, clearly one of them would be his contention at least, um, Chris Wallace has said he's not going to be a fact checker, but Trump's contention is that he's built the greatest economy until COVID came along that the world has ever seen. You would certainly, if you were him, make the economy one of the points that you would want to emphasize, wouldn't you? Sure. And I wouldn't be shy about the fact that uh, the former vice president made statements about COVID at various times that are totally antithetical to what he says now. Because, candidly, the more we learn about COVID, the more opinions are changed. I, I think the, the interesting issue tonight is when Trump is attacked, for instance, for the taxes, I, I think it would be appropriate to talk about uh, the former vice president's judgment. He has previously stated that as president, he would not want any members of his family to be hired by large foreign companies to be dealing with foreign governments. And the question needs to be asked, why then was it appropriate for your son to do that when you were vice president? Because he can come across as the very nice grandfather 
but he needs to understand he needs to be able to respond why it was appropriate for a son to be making hundreds if not millions of dollars in an issue he knew nothing about but for the fact that he was the son of the vice president Audrey, there's no question that Hunter Biden is a liability in terms of his relationship with Ukraine uh, for uh, Joe Biden. So, um, but it, and, and so we'll see how that uh, plays out tonight. Um, but, you know, Audrey, and, and then tomorrow I want to get you in on this, too. Um, I, to prepare for the show today, I watched some of the 2016 Trump-Clinton debates again. Not, not all of them, but watched little pieces of them. And what I think it's easy to forget is that whether you like his style or not, Trump ended up being really good at commanding the stage of those debates, making the points he wanted to make. Yes, bullying at times Hillary Clinton, but uh, Joe Biden walks into a room with a guy who showed in 2016 he knows how to get what he wants to get across even if it alienates the people who already dislike him audrey yes and i expect we're going to see some more of that too it's going to be like watching the um sort of like the uh the the schoolyard bully who is cool versus the student government nerd in the office and i expect that trump is going to do what he always does which is you know, throw some insults, do some name calling, make up lines like, hey, did you make up that response in the basement you've been hiding? You know, those types of things. But then it's up to Biden. And I would say, preface this, that I think at this point, Biden has a higher um, uh, level of performance that he has to meet because no one expects much from Donald Trump. They expect, And he's been lowering expectations. I don't practice. I'm president. I do this every day. You know, so if Biden can come in there, and I think the best thing he could do is talk to the American people to lower their anxiety, show off his leadership skills, um, you know, uh, um, foil, act as a foil for Trump's general lack of knowledge about all things constitutional and relating to uh, government process. If he can do that, he will be okay. But he can't make too many mistakes. He cannot. He cannot look like the things that um, Trump has been framing him as, as Sleepy Joe, or you know those types of of things. Yeah, he has to stay immensely cool under pressure and. Trump is an unconventional candidate who showed he's willing to do all sorts of things to unnerve his opponent, like he did in, in 2016 with Hillary Clinton. He's going to go after Biden's family, which is such a soft spot for him. And, and Biden has showed in the past that, that he'll take that stuff really personally and can kind of lash out at, at people in a debate. So he'll have to kind of keep that under control, um, be ready for the unexpected from Donald Trump. Something else he's going to have to do is uh, be careful that he doesn't have any blips. Uh, something you see from Donald Trump and his surrogates is talking about how uh, Joe Biden is getting old, how he's not mentally where he used to be. And Republicans will seize on any sort of blip that that Biden may have. So he has to be very careful that he appears sharp and engaged and with it the entire time. Well, and I just thought of something. And one of the things that we know Trump is, he's a bully. He presents himself as such, and it works for him with certain constituencies. What Joe Biden has to be, you know, having been the littlest guy in my class and had a few bullies to really, you know, try to take advantage of me throughout my life growing up, 
the thing you have to remember is you don't have to beat the bullet, but you have to fight back against the bullet. So that's the point with Joe Biden, and I think that's the advantage he has. He doesn't have to defeat Trump, but he has to demonstrate that he's going to punch back against Trump. And there are millions of Americans, not just Democrats, who want to see somebody punch him back in the face because he's so good and, and, and so inclined to do it. He, Trump throws the insult. And, and one thing Biden can do that I've seen, he also can deliver a punchline and the proper insult. And I think people are going to appreciate that. Um, Sam, I, I said when I mentioned that Chris Wallace is going to be the moderator, the sole moderator of this debate, uh, that he has uh, said in interviews uh, leading up to tonight that he does not plan to play fact checker. We remember there was a moment um, in a debate against Hillary Clinton in which Candy Crowley, the former CNN uh, uh, political reporter, actually jumped into the middle of an argument between the two candidates and did call out um, uh, uh, uh the uh, one of the candidates for making for for making an accusation that wasn't true. It's not important to go into the details now of what it was, but at, look at it from our point of view. People like me as journalists, that's a tough spot to be in, especially when you know that hyperbole has been a part of President Trump's entire political career. And where at times Joe Biden has made statements that Washington Post and other fact checkers have dealt with. I, I just should a moderator try to remain as neutral as possible. Look, there was a moment in the Obama Romney um, debate where the moderator jumped in, and guess what? She was a hundred percent wrong, and it really hurt Romney. So I think yeah, that the was the Crowley moment. Yeah, so she's had more than one. Uh, I was trying to be nice to her and not reference that it was her twice. Uh, I think the the what you want in a moderator is really tough questions, and I think Chris Wallace does that very very well. All right, I wish we had more time to talk about this, but we are completely out of time for today's show. Um, Tamar Hallerman, Audrey Haynes, Sam Olins, Michael Thurman, thank you for a, just a terrific conversation. Um, we will be back tomorrow with another show in which we'll talk about what happened in the debate, among other things. Again, please, please, if you have the, the, uh, the resources, now is the time we ask you to help GPB Radio. Go to gpb.org. Contribute right now. Thank you so much. I'm Bill Nygut. Until I see you tomorrow, take care. Stay healthy. Wear a mask. And please get a flu shot. See you tomorrow.